0: There you go. Can you all hear me now? Let's try it again. Good evening. <laughs> glad you're all here. It's good to come on a Wednesday night. You sort of recharge your batteries and sort of get washed off from the world's whatever they're throwing at you during the week. So glad everybody could come tonight and uh, join us. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at quite a few scriptures tonight. Uh, we've got our main, main scripture, our, our main theme. But we're going to be um, looking at a lot of different scriptures that are really good. And so um, hope I won't go too fast so that you can jot these reference scriptures down so that you can, you know, go home and take a look at them and uh, try to apply them to what we've learned tonight, okay? Well, let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it's our lifeline to how we are to live. Uh, Father, we ask that as we look at scripture tonight, that your word would have its effect. Help us to be good listeners. Help us to not only listen, but to obey your word, where you, Holy Spirit, prick our hearts. And so we commit this time to you. May you receive all the glory and all of the honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the choking smell and and the crackling sound of wood roused Dion Lama from a deep sleep one night in 2020. As he jolted upright, he realized that his house was on fire. Now, Dahan lived in Nepal's Himalayas, just at the foothills, he and his family. Dahan had become a Christian five years earlier, at the age of 65, and his decision to follow Christ cost him greatly. There was deep opposition from the Buddhist community where he lived, and really deep opposition from his family as well. In fact, his wife left him and took their children. And then she continued to agitate the villagers against him. They cursed him, they threw stones at him, they threatened him. But Dehan remained faithful. In fact, he led several villagers to the Lord. And he became a leader of a small house fellowship. As the persecution from the villagers increased, Dehan Lama began a 40-day fast to get some direction on what to do. Midway through his fast is when his house was set on fire. When he realized what was happening that night in 2020, Dion rushed to get his family out, which he did, But in the process, he has suffered burns on the left side of his body, but he survived. Later, he learned that the Buddhists who set the fire intended to kill him that night. The next morning, all that remained of Dahan Lama's home was a pile of stone and ash. And the crops he had stored for their family for the next winter had been destroyed. In Pakistan, did you know that Christians are relegated to the lowest status in society? They have the worst jobs, they have little opportunity for education and are at continual risk of harassment by Muslim coworkers. And the children don't fare any better than that. My father is a laborer, said Kanwal a seventh-grade girl in a Pakistani village. He works in the fields or sometimes as a helper to the masons. And on some days, he has no work. My mother works as a servant in such rich people's homes. My parents are poor, and they cannot buy me books. I always get used books. So missionaries recently gave Conwall a children's Bible, and she was thrilled. I love reading the children's Bible every day. Before sleeping, she said, I also read the stories to my parents, and they love the stories. Conwa will grow up knowing that she's loved and valued by her creator, even though the society around her tells her she's worth nothing. Her Bible will also prepare her for the persecution she's likely to face as a follower of Jesus Christ. In November 2021, a mob of Hindu extremists interrupted a Sunday morning church service in central India and began threatening the worshiping members present. The mob was about 50 members or so of a Hindu extremist group, and their goal was to purify India of Christians because they considered Christians traitors to the Hindu religion. So after interrupting the church service, the extremists called the police and made false accusations against the pastor, which was their normal thing they did. As the police tried to mediate the conflict, a villager arrived to inform one Christian, a man called Kabur, that his home had been burned down. When Kabur, his four sons and their families, 23 family members in all, returned home they found that their home indeed had been burned to the ground and all of their crops for the next winter had been destroyed the attack on kabar's home is thought to have been related to the disruption at the church as an act of retaliation against kabar's faithful witness what other example Christians in Laos are often persecuted most severely by their own family members. This was a case with a couple. His name was Fawn and her name was Young. The married couple, who had two children, were until recently living with Fawn's parents. But Fawn developed a chronic illness... And so he consulted medical doctors and he even consulted a witch doctor, but he found no relief. Well, finally, his wife Yun decided to take him to a Christian relatives in another village. And while they were there, they heard the gospel, and both Fawn and Yun became Christians. Fawn recovered from his illness, and the re- the couple returned home. That's when the persecution began. After learning of the couple's newfound faith, Fawn's parents and other relatives told him that his family would have to move out unless they renounce Christ. They thought that since Fawn had returned home healthy, why do you need Jesus Christ? Well, Fawn and his wife, Yun, they held their ground and they said, no, we can't renounce our Lord. As a result of this, Fawn's parents chased him and his family from their home, forcing them to flee with only the clothes on their back. Boy, what treatment. What treatment. Treatment like this is obvious to believers living under oppressive regimes. If you live there, you expect that as a believer. However, some in the West may say, yes... But we aren't facing that kind of persecution today. Not here. It's true that for many centuries, followers of of the Lord Jesus Christ in Europe and here in America haven't faced culture-wide persecution because of their faith. But that era has almost disappeared. And a new era is upon us. Exactly what it will be like is not clear yet. But it seems unlikely that it will be favorable to those believers as Christians. Signs of opposition are already apparent. I think we can all agree to that as we look in the news, hear the news, the TV. I think it's apparent. Opposition is apparent. Persecution of Jesus' followers simply for their allegiance to him is no longer unthinkable, whether in the family, the community, or the workplace. Dr. Jean Edward Veith is provost and professor of literature emeritus at Patrick Henry College in Virginia. And I believe he makes a very astute observation about the church and listen to what he says. Quote, one of the greatest paradoxes in Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. When things are easy and good, that is when the church most often goes astray. When Christianity seems identical with the culture, and even when the church seems to be enjoying its greatest earthly success, then it is weakest. Conversely, when the church encounters hardship, persecution, and suffering, then it is closest to its crucified Lord. Then there are fewer hypocrites and nominal believers among its members. And then the faith of Christians burns most intensely." End quote. Now for us, persecution may not take the forms that I've just described to you with those four examples uh, but it may take other forms. It may take more subtle forms. And see if you can identify uh, to some of these forms of persecution, especially if your desire is to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe your boss asks you to lie, this flat-out lie about something. Or maybe he asks you to um, change the books, doctor up the books a little bit. And you as a believer, you approach him or her with respect and you appeal to them as a believer and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that because this clearly violates what scripture says. You lose your job. Or you're demoted. Or you never receive a raise. Maybe you get saved and your unbelieving spouse can't take the new you, and your spouse divorces you. Maybe your family or a close friend cut you off because of your faith. Maybe in high school, you're mocked by your teacher in class. Or in college, maybe you have an atheist professor that humiliates you in the front of the Other students. Just yesterday I was watching the news and a high school football coach in the state of Washington was fired because he dared to get his team together after the game and pray. And that's going to the Supreme Court, I I understand. So I'm sure everybody here who is a believer, can cite their own examples of things that perhaps you've, you've gone through. Down through church history, I was thinking of this. Christians have been persecuted. Think of the Old Testament prophets and what they went through. Uh, history says that the great prophet Isaiah was sawn in half because of those who hated him. Um, New Testament apostles, look what they went through. All of them were martyred, history has it, except John. Christians at the Colosseum when Nero was the emperor, look at the treatment they received, thrown into the Colosseum, wrapped in animal skins. Family members watching them being torn to pieces. Or in Nero's gardens, Christians were being used as lighted lamps, burning alive. And we could go on and on and cite... The other millions down through the ages who maybe didn't get, give their lives, but were still persecuted. Look how Christ was treated himself. The writers of the New Testament, including Jesus himself, addresses this issue of persecution. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12. In Luke chapter 6, 22 and 23, Matthew 5, 10, 11, 12, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted prophets who were before you. Luke chapter 6, 22 and 23 records this. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Why are Christians treated this way? That was the question I had. Christians are some of the most loving people on the face of the earth. Why are they treated this way? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in a passage that we're going to look at tonight. It's going to help us, I think, put persecution in perspective. And our passage is found in the Gospel of John. If you aren't there already, then that's where we'll be, the Gospel of John. Just briefly, you recall that the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. He was one of the three most intimate associates of Jesus, along with Peter and James. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry. And after Christ's ascension, John becomes a pillar in the Jerusalem church. Galatians 2.9 says... And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, this is Paul talking, James and Cephas and John, who were reported to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So John was a pillar in the Jerusalem church. John had a purpose in writing this gospel of John. It's found in John 20, 30 and 31, which says, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing, you may have life in his name. So you're in John. Now make your way to the 15th chapter of John. John 15. I'm just going to narrow this down to um, what we're going to look at. John 15. It's always important to set the context in a passage so that we don't wander off and pull something out of context. So let's, let's, um, let's find out what's going on. Okay, in John chapter 15. Well, here in, in, in John 15, the Lord continued his farewell discourse to his disciples. This was the night before he was going to go to the cross, just hours before he was going to be arrested. He had his 11 men with him, his 11 apostles. Uh, the 12th, Judas Iscariot, he had split. He had gone, gone out to do his diabolical um, Scheme of denying and turning in the Lord. So it was Jesus and his 11 men. And they were in that upper room that night before his death. Now his message up to that point had been one of reassurance of his continued love for them. If you look back at chapter 13, Jesus reassures his men of his love for them, which they needed, right? And in chapter 14... Jesus gives them some magnificent promises. This is chapter 14 is where Jesus says, when I go away, I'm preparing a place for you. When I come back, you're going to be with me there. And he also promises the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. So Jesus is uh, trying to reinforce, reassure them of his continued love for him. But the disciples would still have to face the hostile, rebellious, Christ-rejecting world and Jesus knew this. So Jesus balances the promises of comfort and blessing with a warning to the disciples of the hostility that awaited them. So Jesus knew that after he left that his disciples were going to face some tough, tough times. Some difficult opposition from the world. But the Reality was they would face some severe persecution, not just from the pagan world, but also from the religious crowd as well. So here the Lord wanted, to, wanted these men to know what to expect from the world and more importantly, how to respond to the persecution that they would experience. So the specific text that we want to look at in John chapter 15 is verses 18 through 25. So this is what we're really going to focus on, 18 through 25. And in these verses, Jesus describes the disciples' relationship to the world. Now, imagine you being one of the eleven. That night, you were probably confused as to what was going on. Jesus had already told you, men, you're going to scatter from me. And he looked at Peter and he says, and Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And these men, in their hearts, I believe these men were hoping and praying that Jesus was gonna set up his kingdom right then and there. I believe that's what they were hoping with all their heart. They would get rid of those Romans and Jesus sets up his kingdom, but that's not, that wasn't what Jesus, it wasn't his time he had in mind. In fact, what Jesus tells these men in 18 through 25 is some very, very tough stuff. It's very hard what they're gonna hear. Jesus, in essence, says, men, the world is going to hate you. And the world, because of that, the world is going to hate Christians and hate you as well. Why? Why? Well, this passage reveals why. So let me read, and you can follow along with me. Let's read John 15, 18 through 25. And listen to what the Lord says. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In this passage... This passage reveals three reasons why the world hates Christians. Three reasons. Reason number one is found in verse, the first part of verse 18 and in verse 19. If the world hates you, and then jump down to 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world... But I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Here's the first reason the world hates Christians. It's because we are not part of the world. We're not part of it. Now, in this passage, I I took note of of several key words. And I think it's good for us to at least understand the meaning of the words. Whenever you, you have a passage and you you find a word that's repeated more than once, maybe two, three, four, five times. It's a key that you should look it up and find out what it means. In this passage, we're looking at nine times the word hate is used. So I looked up what the word hate meant. And here's the definition. Malicious and unjustifiable feelings toward others, whether towards the innocent or by mutual animosity. Another word that Jesus emphasizes here is the word world. So what is the meaning of the word world? What is he meaning by that? He uses it six times in verses 18 and 19. The world refers to the organized system under Satan's domain. It doesn't mean the created world that our Lord made. It's the organized system under Satan's domain that it's opposed to God and it's opposed to Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the word world when we use it. Now, D.A. Carson points out that we see the world's hatred in those who claim to be liberal and tolerant of differing viewpoints, but who are not so tolerant when it comes to Christian absolutes. And Carson states this, and I quote, "...they demonstrate their forbearance and large-hearted goodness when they confront diverse opinions, varied lifestyles, and even idiotic practices." But if some Christian claims that Christianity is exclusive, as Jesus insisted, or that moral absolutes exist because they are grounded in the character of God, as the Bible teaches, or that there is a hell to be shunned as well as a heaven to be gained, the most intemperate language is used to excoriate the poor fool. The world hates, end quote, from Carson. The world resents us as believers because our life condemns its evil works. Listen to what Proverbs 29:27 says, "He who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked." What a verse, huh? In 1 John 3:12, John in his epistle illustrates that very principle with the story of the first murder in human history. Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and its brothers were righteous. Isn't it amazing that on the other hand, the world applauds those who practice evil? You notice that? Last part of Romans chapter 1, verse 32 says this, And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval of those who practice them. Have you noticed over the last couple of years on TV with the destruction of our cities, with the looting and all of that, there are people that actually are applauding these people that are breaking the law. They applaud unrighteousness. Psalm 12, verse 8 says, The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Boy, how true that is, and we have seen that. So, though we live in the world, we are not of the world. And Jesus understood this. In fact, he said in John chapter 17... Verses 14 through 18, listen to what he said. And this is a beautiful prayer between him and his father. And we have the privilege of listening in on this wonderful prayer. Listen to what Jesus says. I have given them your word, speaking of his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So we're not part of the world. And that's why the world hates Christians. We don't go lockstep with the world. We're not not of it. Paul charged the Philippians, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. Ephesians 5.11 says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, he admonished the Ephesians, but instead... Even expose them. Well, while worldly people hate those who follow Jesus Christ, they love each other. Birds of a feather flock together. Unbelievers are comfortable with and supportive of other unbelievers. That's what verse 19 says. It says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Had the disciples been part of the world, they would have experienced the imperfect love the world has to offer its own. But they weren't of the world, and neither are we. You're not part of the world because Jesus chose you out of the world, verse 19 says. Jesus chose you for himself. All the credit for your salvation belongs to him. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that great doctrine of election silence, silences human pride, does it not? And <clears throat> This doctrine upsets many people. Proud people like to think that they have the ability to choose Christ. But he taught that no man can come to him unless the Father draws him. Well, the world hates Christians because we are not part of the world. Reason number two, why is it that unbelievers hate Christians? I believe it's because it hated Jesus Christ. Look at verse, uh, last part of 18b. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's another reason the world hates Christians is because they hated Jesus Christ. And we represent Jesus Christ. Verse 20, look what it says. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Should we be surprised at the world's hostility since it hated Jesus Christ? That hatred has been manifested throughout John's gospel. If you read the whole gospel, many, many places, Um, it, it pictures the hatred that the unbelievers have for Jesus. I just picked out a few. In John 5, 16, it says the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In verse 18 of the same chapter, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. In verse 32, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officials to seize him. In chapter 8, 59, and 1031, they picked up stones to throw at him. In chapter 11, they plotted to kill him. And eventually they arrested him, they beat him, scourged him, and they did crucify him. In verse 20, what did the Lord mean when he said, a slave is not greater than his master? Well, notice he asked his disciples to remember. Remember when he first said this. Well, when did he first say this? Well, if you go back to John chapter 13, verses 14 through 16, this is when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he says this very phrase, a slave is not greater than his master. Well, what was his point? His point was that since they weren't greater than him, they should wash one another's feet. And here in chapter 15, when Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. Men, he says, since you're not greater than me, You're going to be hated and persecuted because they have hated and persecuted me. You're not greater than me, so it's going to come to you as well. Well, Jesus implies in verse 20 that you as a believer, you're no longer under the dominion of Satan. He's no longer your master. Instead, Christ is your master. And because Jesus is your new master, the world does not understand your behavior. It just doesn't. They don't they don't understand your way of thinking. The world thinks that people are basically good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that all are sinners in rebellion against God. People in the world live for themselves and their own agendas. Not so with the Lord's people. The Lord's people live for him and his purposes. The world makes up its own relative moral standards. Not so with God's people. God's people obey his moral absolutes. So you can see that misunderstanding and hostility from the world are inevitable. It's just inevitable. If we determine a desire to live for the Lord there's going to be clashes. It's just inevitable in the world in which we live. So the disciples had no right to expect better treatment from the world than he had received. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had told them, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Matthew 10, 24 and 25. Now, so here's what Jesus was telling his men. Okay, But the picture was not entirely bleak. The Lord went on to add in the last part of verse 20, if they kept my word... They will keep yours also. As was the case with Jesus, the majority would reject the disciples' teaching. They rejected Jesus' teaching, the majority did, so they're going to reject most of the disciples' teaching. But there would always be a remnant, there would always be a minority who would accept the disciples' message. And this is, must have been a little, uh, some light in the midst of that grim... Um, things that jesus was telling them matthew 7 14 says this for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it he doesn't say there are none that find it there are few there are a minority and jesus says man i want you to know there are will be a few that will receive your message matthew 22 14 says for many are called but few are chosen. A few, a minority, are chosen. Well, we've seen that the world hates Christians because we're not part of it, because it hates Jesus Christ. And thirdly, third reason why the world hates Christians, because it does not know God. Verse 21, I think, spells out the heart of the problem of the world. They don't know God. I think that's the heart. That's the heart of the issue. The world does not know God. Instead, they create their own gods. Just about anything can become a god. It doesn't have to be wood or gold or silver or made into an idol. Children can be an idol. Sports, cell phones, careers, Wealth, anything you devote yourself to. Unbelievers don't realize they're chasing false gods. And even as a Christian, you have to be careful what you devote your time and attention to. We see in John 17:3 what God wants for you. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you're different because you know the true and living God. The world doesn't. It can't without the indwelling Holy Spirit. In verses 23 through 24, those who heard Jesus bore an even greater responsibility for rejecting the truth. And these these are some very sobering verses. The Lord wasn't speaking here of sin in general, but rather of the specific sin of willfully rejecting him in the face of full revelation. Here Jesus Christ was in the world visible to men. Men heard him, men watched him, men saw his actions. And yet what did the world do? They rejected him flat out. In a face of full revelation. And that's the most serious sin of all. Because it's the only one that is not forgivable. Jesus in Matthew 11, 20 through 24 said this. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus denounced these cities where he had done most of his miracles because they didn't repent. In verse 25... Jesus cites the Old Testament. He cites Psalm thirty-five nineteen and Psalm sixty-nine four. Both of these psalms were written by David. And listen to what David says in Psalm thirty-five nineteen: Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. And Psalm, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. This is what David wrote. Now, what's his point? What's Jesus' point in referring to what David said? Well, his point is that if David, a mere man, could be so hated by his enemies, how much more the sinless son of God? The world hated Jesus because he exposed their sin. And he confronted them with the reality of who he is. That the world continues to do so, it just reveals the wickedness of the heart, doesn't it? It just reveals the vileness of sin. But for you that are born again, who encounter opposition for your commitment to Christ... There's great joy in the Lord's promise in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Listen to Jesus' promise to you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, we've seen in this passage three reasons why the world can't stand Christians. They reject us because we're not part of it. They reject Christians because the world hates Jesus. And they reject Christians because the world doesn't know God. Savannah Rola, who's been called the, the burning beacon of the Reformation, said this. His sermons denounced the sin and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church of his day, and it helped pave the way for the Protestant Reformation. Many who heard him, his powerful sermons, went away half-dazed, bewildered, and speechless Often sobs of repentance resounded throughout the whole congregation as the Spirit of God moved in his listeners' hearts. However, some in that congregation who heard him couldn't tolerate the truth and eventually had him executed. J.C. Ryle He was a first bishop of Liverpool. Uh, Ryle was born in 1818, died in 1900. In his book, Are You Ready for the End of Time, says this about persecution. This was written almost 150 years ago. Listen to what Ryle says. It's a little bit lengthy, but I, I think it's worthwhile. Listen to what he said almost 150 years ago. What does, and he wrote in this older English, okay? I think you can understand it. Who does not know that as things are now, spiritual religion never brings a man the world's praise? It never has done and it never does at this day. It entails on a man the world's persecution, the world's mockery, the world's opposition, the world's ridicule, the world's sneers, The world will let a man serve the devil and go to hell quietly. And no one lifts a finger to stop him or says, be merciful to your soul. The world will never let a man serve Christ and go to heaven quietly. Everybody cries, hold hard, and does everything that can be done to keep him back. Who has not heard of nicknames in plenty bestowed on those who follow Christ? Who does not know the petty family persecutions which often go on in private society in our day? Let a young person go to every ball and opera and race course and worldly party and utterly neglect his soul and no one interferes. No one says, spare thyself. No one says, take care, remember God, judgment and eternity. But let him only begin to read his Bible and be diligent in prayer. Let him decline worldly amusements and become particular in his employment of time. Let him seek an evangelical ministry and live like an immortal being. Let him do this, I say, and all his friends and relations will probably be up in arms. You are going too far. You need not be so very good... You are taking up extreme views. This, in all probability, is the very least that such a person will hear. If a young woman, she will be marked and avoided by all her equals. If a young man, he will be set down by all who know him as weak, silly, and precise. In short, such a person will soon discover that there is no help from the world in the way to heaven but plenty of help in the way to hell. Alas, that it should be so, but so it is. These are ancient things, as it was in the days of Cain and Abel, as it was in the days of Isaac and Ishmael, even so it is now. They that are born after the flesh will persecute those that are after the spirit. Galatians 4, 29. The cross of Christ will always bring reproach with it, As the Jews hated Christ, so the world hates Christians. As the head was bruised, so also the members will be. As contempt was poured on the master, so it will be also on the disciples. In short, if a man will become a decided evangelical Christian in the present order of things, he must count the cost. And make up his mind to lose the world's favor in a world in a word, he must be content to be thought by many little more than a fool. End quote. Sinful people will not tolerate a righteous standard. Well, this is what the Lord laid out for his disciples in those verses heavy stuff, pretty grim. But Jesus didn't leave them there. And he doesn't leave you and I there either when we face our own persecutions. That's not Jesus. Because in verses 26 and 27, we'll not get to those tonight, but in 26 and 27, Jesus promises help. He says, help is on the way. He said, I'm not going to leave you confused, overwhelmed, by what's ahead? That's, that's not the Lord. Look at verse 26. Jesus says this. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus makes a wonderful, wonderful, comforting promise to his men. He says, men, when I go, there's going to be another to come. And he's going to be with you forever. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the one that's going to see you through the persecution that you're going to be facing. What a promise. And what an encouragement that had to be to the men, to the disciples And as I thought about this, there's a couple other things that are encouraging for us as well uh, in the days to come, years, whatever the Lord tarries. Let's remember a couple of things before we turn to a personal application for each one of us, okay? Now, I thought of this. In Romans eight thirty nine, the last part of it, it says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from God's love. That's encouraging. Nothing. Persecution, nothing. Hebrews 4.16 and 7.25, talking about Jesus, says this. Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's always available for us to cry out to him. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is making intercession for you at this very moment. Isn't that comforting to know? Somebody's interceding for me and it's the Lord Jesus and not only the Lord Jesus but listen to what Romans 8 26 says in the same way the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words so we not only have the Lord Jesus interceding but we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us and there's nothing that can separate us from God's love well how does all of this apply to you and I in 2022 well I found a a passage of scripture that Peter wrote to a church that was under fire In 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19, I want to leave you with this because I think these are four principles that we can take with us that will enable us us to triumph over persecution that we face. Four principles, four attitudes, if you want to call them that, that we can take with us. Um, Quickly, 1 Peter... Um, Peter obviously is writing. He's writing from Rome. He's writing to a persecuted church, a church under heavy, heavy persecution. Nero's the emperor. Nero's gone crazy. He's burned Rome down, and the scapegoats are Christians, right? He's blaming the Christians, and therefore um, the, the Christians in Rome are under much, much persecution, not only in Rome, but in the whole <clears throat> Roman Empire. Bad, bad news for Christians. Peter writes to these Christians and how to handle persecution. I think it's applicable to you and I. I think we can take four things from this as you face whatever you face. Okay? And by the way, this is in, this was not my own, this is in MacArthur's um, commentary on 1 Peter. If you have his commentary, it's, it's tremendous stuff. And uh, here's what MacArthur says there are four attitudes that are necessary in order to be triumphant. Okay, first, in, um, in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, and I won't read them for the sake of time, but in verse 12, first thing, first attitude that'll help us triumph is expect it. That's what the verse says, expect it. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. If you desire to live for Christ, you will be persecuted. That's what Jesus promised it's in the word okay so expect it attitude number 2 what's something else that we can we can take with us that'll help us when we are persecuted number 2 found in verses 13 and 14 rejoice in it <laughs> rejoice in it the only way we're going to rejoice is to be filled with the holy spirit it's going to be the holy spirit that's going to allow us to rejoice Okay, because none of us go out searching for persecution. Okay. But he says, Peter writes and says, I want you to rejoice in it. Third thing, third attitude that's necessary if we want to triumph in persecution. Evaluate its cause. Verses 15 through 18. Evaluate where the persecution is coming from. Is it of God? Is it... Is it because you're suffering for Christ or is it because of something silly you've done and you're just reaping the consequences of it? Is it actually something that you're suffering for Christ's sake for? So evaluate. Evaluate where the persecution is coming from. And fourthly, last thing, last attitude that will help us triumph is entrust it to God. And that's verse 19 of 1 Peter 4. Verse 19, entrust it to God, give it to the Lord. Again, only by the Holy Spirit's power, but give it to the Lord. So expect it, rejoice in it, evaluate its cause, and entrust it to the Lord. So when unbelievers seem to win, don't fret. God's still in control, is he not? He will ultimately judge all unbelievers who wrong you, and he will vindicate his people who have been persecuted for his name's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, how it meets every need that we have It's our lifeline, Lord, to how we're to live. And I thank you, Lord, that you don't withhold anything from your children. You tell it like it is. And Father, um, we don't know the future. You know the future. But Father, as you have sustained believers throughout the ages, we know that you will sustain us So we thank you for that. We thank you for your many promises to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear people who have come tonight, Lord, out of their busy week. And we ask you, Lord, that you would place in our hearts a desire to live for you, a desire to live for you in our thinking in our actions, in our words. So we need your help, Holy Spirit. And so we ask you for that. Help us to be Christians who desire to live for you. And no matter what happens, Holy Spirit, you will see us through because you promised that. So we ask all of these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.